Welcome to I'm a Writer But. My guest today is Cleo Chen. Cleo Chen is a fiction writer and poet from California. She received her MFA from NYU. Her work has appeared in over 20 outlets, was a winner of the Zoetrope All-Story Short Fiction Competition, has been nominated for the Pushcart Prize, twice longlisted for the Disquiet Prize, and supported by Sundress Academy for the Arts. By day, she works at a nonprofit and reads self-help articles on how to be happy. Her debut book is Let's Go, Let's Go, Let's Go, a collection of electric, unsettling, and often surreal stories that explore the alienated, technology-mediated lives of restless Asian and Asian-American women today. Welcome, Cleo! Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so happy that you're here. I loved your book so much. I cannot understand how there can be this many amazing stories. Aww, that's very sweet of you. <laughs> I feel like in my collections, I'm like, all right, I like half of these stories. <laughs> yeah, someone once told me that like if you read a collection and you like seven out of 10 stories, then it's a winner. Yes, exactly. But I liked every story. Aww, thank um, you. And they were also unexpected. There were so many surprising pivots and shocks and I'm I'm thrilled to talk to you about it. But before we get started, would you give us a little taste? Yes. Um I'm going to read from the very first story in the collection, which is called Chicken Film Youth. It was hard to articulate the point at which we switched from wanting to get older to feeling like we could stand to be a little bit younger. Perhaps there had never been a point when we really felt like we wanted to be older, only to have the things we thought being older entailed. Freedom, money, privacy, love. But it had always been true that if we were a little bit younger, a little bit fresher, then we'd be a little bit better. It was raining in LA, a slurry of wet in a city never designed for it. Water poured down from rooftops and pooled in inconvenient potholes. Aggressive Porsche 718s and equally aggressive Honda CRVs competed on right turns, raising miniature tsunamis over the sidewalks. Sitting by the windows of Mr. King's chicken restaurant, we watched the rain drizzle over the billboards and blinking lights advertising the other stores in the strip mall. The Thai restaurant, the shaved ice cafe, the boba and crepe shop, the tofu house, and the aspirational artisanal grocery store with the $26 charcuterie plates. The rain made the strip mall look muted, pretty, the neon lights taking on a fairy tale aura as they blurred through the pane. Half and half spicy sauce and soy garlic, Mr. Kane called out. Grab some radish, too, Dake reminded me as I pushed my chair back. When I put the tray on the table, he said, this chicken looks amazing. The fried chicken, unveiled from its styrofoam lid, glistened with a honeyed texture. Underneath its sprinkling of white sesame seeds, the skin of the chicken pieces beckoned with its coy, crisp, perfectly golden color. In an unusual move that had given this restaurant its write-up in the Times, the chicken was layered with a hearty handful of cut fruit, avocado, raspberries, blueberries, and a few slices of jalapeno. When we bit in, the meat was warm, moist, and tender. Eileen mmmed. The glazed fruit added a startlingly light contrast to the meat. Jessica sucked on her iced water. The rest of us all had beers. Jessica was a killjoy who cared about calories and something about how alcohol caused skin aging. When she was a kid, she had entered into beauty pageants. She wore little tiaras, had skin so bright and glowing, it was like her face was a spotlight. Now she was still pretty, but she wasn't a pageant winner. She was a dental hygienist. She wore fuzzy cardigans and circle lenses. 
Every year, she spent hundreds, if not thousands, on skincare, makeup, and lash extensions to keep her 3,000 Instagram followers and trickle of occasionally fraudulent sponsorship offers. But hey, what else could she do? She was no longer 22. She was 28. We were all 28, or just about to turn 29. There were four of us, Dake, Jessica, Eileen, and me. Dake and I were high school friends. We met in LA, or more precisely, Long Beach, where we went to the California Institute of Mathematics and Science, which is a magnet school for cutthroat bitches and overachievers. It's the kind of place where if you aren't already taking college-level calculus when you're in the eighth grade, you're behind. When I transferred in, Dake and I bonded over our mutual relative inferiority. Senior prom, there had been a let's go as friends date, an awkward kiss, emotional fallout, and then we stopped speaking. Until the summer he was interning at Snapchat, I was interning at the LA Department of Cultural Affairs, we got lunch, and things were okay again. Sometimes I look at him and wonder a little bit about what we would be like together, but for the most part, I leave it alone. Luna, tell me about you and Billy, Eileen said. God, I can't believe you're dating someone named Billy. Dake's sardonic tone made me bristle with a sight for some of irritation. I know, I know, I said, trying to shrug it off. Billy was new. I'd run into him in a Trader Joe's. My cart had stiff wheels. He had two towering stacks of canned San Marzano tomatoes and cannelli beans in his arms. An accidental nudge and they all came tumbling down. One can bounced off the naked toenail of my big toe. I'm so sorry, I gasped as my toe throbbed. I'm so sorry, he gasped. He ran to find an employee to get a band-aid for the toe. There were no other injuries. And I'll stop there. Thank you so much. That's a great example of what I was trying to get at before about just surprising pivots because you you kind of lull us into, okay, this is going to kind of be like, you know, the dynamics of friendship, right? Like even the way that the story starts um, and it is that, but then there, it takes this really surprising turn when Mr. Kang, who is mm. the proprietor of the restaurant invites them into the back where he had, he shows them a film he made. And mm-hmm. there's a, a long portion where the film is described and, and then the film is over and then the friends all have reactions to it. And some of the reactions are surprising, not to spoil it for anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, they're different from Luna's reactions. Um, and so, I don't know, I, I guess I just want to hear from you what it was like to shape that story, how you knew it was going to pivot from the friends to the back room, this other world, really, this, it feels like mm. another thing I was going to say to you is that your book feels like the multiverse, <laughs> like <laughs> things are, things are recognizable, but they're also like, um, they're like bright and vivid in a way that shocks you into thinking mm. like, well, wait a minute, I'm looking at something completely new here. Um, but anyway, back to this story. I just want to hear how how this structure came to you, how the story unfolded as you wrote it. Yeah. Um, so actually, this particular story, Chicken Film Youth, um, the idea first came to me when I went to a real Korean fried chicken restaurant in LA called Goltong, which um, I went with two two classmates and and along the wall, there were these movie posters. And later, we looked it up online and found that, yes, the the um, the owner of that establishment had once been a film director in Korea. And there was definitely no, like, Mr. Kang, like, showing us a film and, like, telling us about his life. But I started wondering, like, oh, like, how did he get there? Like, how did he get from being a film director to being the owner of this chicken restaurant 
in LA. Mm-hmm. And at the same time that I first went to this restaurant, um, a lot of my friends and I were having these like sort of like, you know, late 20s aging crises. And actually one of my friends was in a relationship where she was like, it's going well, like it's going so well that she could imagine being in the same relationship in like four or five years time and that feeling terrified her. Mm-hmm, and I mm-hmm. was really intrigued by her saying that. Um, and so kind of all these things coalesced as I was like putting the story together about aging and like what it's like to like compare yourself to your friends and like a lot of questioning about a lot of questioning about and anxiety about like the trajectory of our lives. Like, are mm-hmm. we going to are they going to look like what we when we were younger thought they were going to look like? Right. Like, am I going to be this great film director? Yes. That ends up being, uh, you know, a restaurant owner. And it seems like Mr. Kang makes delicious food that people <laughs> love, you know, like. Yeah, well, yeah, the restaurant is amazing and and also got all these rave reviews. So, you know, I don't want to like presume that there was like a failure or sense of like modesty, I guess, on the real in the on the on the real owner's part. But, you know, um, my my friends and I are all like you know creative people with creative ambitions so I think there was a lot of wondering like oh like how why did he pivot like what happened in his life yeah because you can only ever think about it in terms of where you are in your life right like you can only ever think about like well you know that seems like such a big accomplishment to make these movies and it doesn't seem as big of a comp of of an accomplishment to then be just making food for the masses right like but that's just your own or my own perspective like maybe yeah in the world that we live in too yeah exactly creative world right exactly and I I have to stop myself all the time thinking like I see people like going to their jobs and stuff and I'm like oh I bet Mm -hmm. they you know they wish they could be a a writer or a performer and I'm like that's actually not true (laughs) it's just the world that I come from is yeah those dreams are so there all the time well also to be frank like the creative industries are so tough like yes. I know people in film or in visual art or you know a lot of writers too and it is you know it's hard a lot of people think about you know quote-unquote giving up a lot of people think like wouldn't I be happier um if I like opened a cafe or wouldn't I be happier if I like you know had health insurance and worked a nine-to-five so I think that the longer you're in the creative industries and the more grueling it is for you which it's grueling for so many of us to like break in and to like you know have have a career Mm -hmm. Um, I think there is a real feeling of like what what would it be like if I just did something that was less painful and tangible right like Mm -hmm. like he's literally making something that he can hold you know um yeah yeah I totally get that it's it's impossible um and you know it's always like okay now I got to do this next thing you know like I always have to stay relevant. Oh, it's so gross, but it's wonderful. It's gross. It's wonderful. Um, because I get to read books like this that are so themselves, so unique. Um, and I feel like just like relentless. Um, (laughs) and I, I guess I had forgotten until I was reading your bio just now that you also write poetry. Yes, I do also write poetry. Is that what you started doing or, or was it fiction first? It was actually fiction first, which I think is not like, I think I hear these days more about poets who start writing fiction versus like comparative fiction writers who start writing poetry. So I think Mm -hmm. I was a little bit uh, 
inverted I guess in that mm. way mm-hmm. um, yeah I I definitely wrote fiction for most of my life and I got my MFA in fiction um, but I've also been writing poetry for you know I mean I started writing poetry in college and like even while writing fiction and like doing a fiction thesis I read a lot of contemporary poetry I made friends with poets I took some outside workshops in poetry so it's always been a consistent like reading interests and something that I do try to hone my craft in a lot alongside fiction. Can you talk a little bit about like what poetry gives you in your practice versus what fiction gives you? Um, yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think that fiction is a form in which you kind of have to organize your thoughts. Um, mm-hmm. And there is, of course, the expectation that there's going to be a narrative, um, which implies some cohesion and some arcs inside. Whereas I think with poetry, you're kind of allowed to be more explosive. Like there's a lot of constraint. There's so much attention on the line level and and um, on the syntax level. But you're allowed to be a little bit more disorganized with like, for example, like an emotional arc or mm-hmm. um There's also, you're allowed to like explain less in some ways. And Mm -hmm. something I was really drawn to in contemporary poetry um, is like the freedom with form. Like there's so much playing with structure and form and wordplay. Um, Sometimes a transformation might occur on a line level just because like two words sound similar to another or like an idea, one idea transforms into another with like a lot of like liquidity. and, um, And the reader of the poem can just accept that without like if, if there if there was a similar transformation in a short story um you know like the, the short story author would have to explain like for example mm-hmm. like if, if in a poem you were like you know the tree became a window for example as like a really bad line of poetry um, <laughs> that could stand on its own for some emotional resonance but then like in a short story if, if the if the person wrote the tree became a window the reader would be like why how and like <laughs> with what mechanism you know so I do like the I kind of like that um that freedom in poetry yeah it almost feels like poetry is more um exacting in how people think right like your your brain moves through these impressions sometimes mm-hmm. at the same time mm-hmm. and there's no like stopping and explaining to yourself oh this is be- I'm thinking of this because I was thinking of that or you know I'm I'm experiencing these images because I, you know, like it just, your brain processes it. And I feel like poetry sometimes can give us that more immediate access to how the brain, how the mind moves. Whereas it's Mm -hmm. like you're saying with, with fiction, you kind of have to bring people into, like, if you establish from the very beginning in a story or a novel, like the trees are just going to become windows in this, you know, (laughs) like you, you establish it, like people then are like, okay, cool. Got it. Mm -hmm. But you do have to do that establishing work where it's, less of that in poetry maybe yeah and I guess I also think poetry is so image driven too and I think like we are in a culture that's so image driven with like tv and film and instagram and photos and and so in a way I think that maybe these days people think in images a lot more than perhaps they did prior to like all this mass media proliferation Mm. um I, I don't know. That's just my, my, my theory, a working theory. Yeah. That's so interesting. It, it's, it's, it's the immediacy. Like we're used to immediacy, right? Yes. And quick hits of like emotion, which I feel like yeah. 
poetry can really deliver like I mean a really good poem like distills like 10 years of feeling into like one gut punch and then you're just like oof yeah and then it can immediately move you to the next thing just like scrolling through Instagram where you're like oh that's so sad and then you're like oh my god so funny (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah it really has reordered our brains yeah that's so true well how long have you been working on the stories in this collection um quite a long time so I really think of the book let's go let's go let's go as like a collection from my 20s Mm. the the very first story the oldest story I wrote the first draft of in 2016 wow so and then through the editing process with Pinhouse once the book was accepted for publication there was one story that I kind of like squeezed in last minute and that was in 2022 so the story did span that time period from 2016 to 2022. Does it feel like a time capsule to you at this point? It really does. Yeah. 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 It's, I, I, I felt like when I changed from my twenties to my thirties, I didn't immediately understand the difference. It felt the same, but Hmm. when I look back at those things I was writing versus the things I was writing in my thirties, it really Hmm. is completely different. It's more obvious to see the difference. Yeah. When did you when did you know you wanted to put them together in a collection? Um the book kind of had a lot of evolution. So the very first time that I put a lot of short stories together and was like this was enough to have a collection was probably early in 2020. It was kind of like my lockdown activity. Mm. And then like um it was one of my lockdown activities, I should say. And then um at the time the title story was the girl with the double eyelids. It wasn't let's go, let's go, let's go. And then um, at the time, the stories on average had like teenagers or like, you know, younger women, um, not in their middle, late 20s. Um, A lot of the concerns and how I initially pitched the book was about girlhood, teenagerhood and coming of age. Mm -hmm. Um, But ultimately um, between 2020 and when the book was finally published, a lot changed like I feel like the book really sharpened when I wrote a couple of new stories chicken film youth is one of them monitor world is one of them um I revised the girl with the double eyelids a lot to like include some more adult abuses in it Mm. um, which the original the initial version did not have and so the average age of the protagonist started to creep up so now like the average age was like they were women who were in their like mid-20s or something Mm -hmm. like that and the concerns of the book did become kind of scarier. Like it, it became a bit of a darker book. And I think that was um, that was when it really started to take shape into the book it is now. And and you just sort of followed it the way that it was going. You 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 let that happen. Yeah. Um, well, so when when I first put the short stories left, uh, when I first put the short stories together in early twenty twenty, in that more like aged down, yeah, uh, version. I sent it to several agents. A lot of people did get back to me and say they really liked it, but they felt like, you know, the market wasn't good for a short story collection at the time, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I was trying to write a novel as many fiction writers are always trying to do. And so I kind of like put the collection away and like was plugging away at this novel that ultimately didn't turn into anything. But I remember like, I remember like when I, wrote Chicken Film Youth and Monitor World. And a really good friend of mine, Genzo Duque, who's also an editor and a writer, um, he read the two of them and he was like, wow, like these two really feel like they have something different. 
and mm -hmm. um and then I was also talking um with another writer friend about titles and I was thinking like well the girl with the double eyelids when I first thought of it like when I was like I think I was like you know in my mid-20s when I first saw that title I was like this is a really cool title but then by the time like three years later I was kind of like well there's a lot of books with like the girl in the title mm -hmm. and like I was like maybe this doesn't feel that fresh anymore and that friend was like let's go let's go let's go is a really good title and I was like oh that's interesting like what it, what would happen if I changed the collection's title to let's go let's go let's go like how would that change the themes and then kind of like changing the title story and changing the focus of the collection in conjunction with um like you know those two or three or even four actually I think I wrote several new stories and like polished a bunch of the old ones and like shifting around you know I, I cut some stories that no longer fit um there was a lot of editing and and ultimately I was like oh this is about escapism it's about like wanting to go somewhere it's about striving and so then it became more of a document of like that pressure and anxiety of going through your 20s and you were doing all of that editing sort of on your own right like there wasn't um there wasn't aside from your friend you know any any editor saying like you should you know no it was more like not. natural for you right it I did feel like I had to find the tone and the and the central cohesion of the collection by myself like I didn't have an agent and um and my whole process of publication was I ended up submitting the book to an open call at Tin House um in sometime in 2022 and and after they accepted the book for publication I reparied with agents and then found an agent after I had already gotten the deal wow and so then the agent helped you close the deal um yeah yeah she she helped me like negotiate various contracts and um you know advocate for better terms and things like that that's so weird because that's exactly how my story went. Is oh, I, really? I, I got an offer from FSG and then I got an agent. <laughs> oh my goodness. I mean, how do you feel about that? Like having that? I mean, it's been, it, that was years ago. Mm-hmm. That was years ago. So um, I, at the time I was kind of like, this is what people do. They get agents, you know, and my editor at FSG is the one who introduced me to people who were interested in me. And that's how mm -hmm. I found my agent. Um, And he's still my agent. So I- I, yeah, I feel good that he's stuck with me and like that, but, um, you just, you're just kind of grasping, right? Like in the beginning, you're just kind of like taking the next step and then taking the next step and taking the next step. But I'm so like impressed and fascinated with your process of like really owning the book yourself, really shaping it yourself mm -hmm. twice, really. Right. Like first when it was sort of about the younger women and then, and then later when you realize that all these other themes and, 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 you know, that the book was aging, that you, you held it in hand and you reshaped it. I, I find that so impressive. I'm, I definitely felt, and maybe you felt the same. I felt like I was doing it all backwards and I felt quite behind my peers because they all had, all my fiction writer friends had agents and went and published after the agent won a submission for them. And, you know, to me, it really was like a big, deemed on my confidence that no agents wanted to sign with me when I just wanted to query the short story collection mm -hmm. um, without a novel and and I felt you know like what's wrong with me like why are my friends all getting agents and I can't get one like that kind of feeling of self-comparison which is like very like prevalent throughout chicken film youth um but actually I do feel like 
ultimately I'm quite private about my writing. Um, I don't often have readers read first drafts. Like I do a lot of the first drafts and the editing and the revision on my own for quite a long time. And I really listen to like my own intuition about pieces. I don't often solicit people's feedback, especially on fiction. And, um, and yeah, that's just, you know, I think that's the way I'm gonna continue to work as well. Like I don't often, like I don't really workshop that much with friends. I don't, I don't either. And I've often wondered what's wrong with me because (laughs) so many writers I talk to have their readers, like they have their group of readers who read for them and they read their stuff. And that sounds terrible to me. (laughs) And do you think, do you think it's because like we've had our fill of workshops because of grad school? What do you think that is? It, well, do you feel like that's what it is? <laughs> <laughs> that could be part of it. But for me, I think it's um, like there's a magic that goes away hmm. or that I'm worried will go away or um, or like it's, yeah, I don't know. It, it feels, I guess maybe it's like you're saying it just feels too private to ask for thoughts on something that I'm still making I don't know I agree I I think I I don't like being influenced by other people and I also have a lot of self-awareness that I'm actually a pretty like you know in my day-to-day life outside of writing I'm a pretty like gullible person I'm very easily I'm very easily advertised to like (laughs) um you know I am in some ways like a very like easy consumer because you just like put up a billboard and say do you want this like foundation I'm like oh maybe I should get that (laughs) and like like, I I think I was like well the one area of my life where I really don't want to be gullible and I really want to like dig my heels in and listen to like what I think is good is in my writing and and, you know, in, in the stories themselves, do let's go, let's go, let's go. You can see like a lot of the protagonists have so much self-doubt. They're always wondering like, is that person doing it right? Am I doing it wrong? And 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 there's so much confusion. And I do think like, I, I just want to preserve my writing self as much as I can in that during the act of creation, like during the act of imagination from all that like relentless self-doubt that's in the outside world. I think you're really hitting it on the head for me there. Um... Because I I think my, I am a very like doubtful person about my (laughs) abilities. And so if anyone's like, this isn't, you know, like, I don't get this or like, what are you going for here? Then I'm like, oh my God, they're right. I'm an idiot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, (laughs) Like, and I don't want to feel like an idiot any more than I already do. (laughs) Yeah. And what you said about, oh, sorry. I'll just quickly say what you said about the magic is like, I do kind of feel like once once you're in a workshop setting and a lot of people are saying like, oh, like, you know, it'd be interesting if we knew more about this character or, oh, I had a question about this part of the backstory. You know, all those questions are like well-intentioned and coming from a genuine place. Um, but it takes a lot of self-discipline to know which questions to answer and which ones don't need to be answered. Mm-hmm. And I personally, I personally just really like fiction that has a mysterious quality to it. And yes. like- has that unknowability to it which I think it's hard to keep that quality of unknowability when you're workshopping your piece and answering everyone's questions about it right and I think those questions that they have like good you should have questions right like that you should absolutely be after the story's over sitting there going now what was with that or I really want to think more about this or Mm -hmm. I don't know what to feel about 
whatever. Like those, I think the best fiction leaves you with more questions than answers. Yeah, I think that's really true. And in the workshop setting, I think maybe, especially when you're like a young workshopper, like, you know, in college or something like that, maybe you expect that your questions will be answered and that's what would make a good piece of writing. But I think as, as I've gotten older, I definitely feel like it's okay. Like as readers, it feels good to not know sometimes. As readers, yeah. it feels good to be like, ooh, like, and, and that unknowability lingers in, in, in the reader's mind. Yeah. And it haunts you. I mean, that that's, you know, I think I use that word already to describe these stories in let's go, let's go, let's go. But it, it haunts you because you can't shake it off. You can't sort of say like, oh, now I get it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and that, not to say that, that your stories are inscrutable or, you know, like uh, whatever. I mean, like there's, there's humanity in these and there's gorgeous imagery. And, you know, even in the little bit that you read describing the food, is just like mm-hmm. such a delight to read. You know, you can taste it. Um, so there's yeah. there's connection. There's constant connection in these stories. But there is definitely like a haunting when you're done reading. Because um, mm-hmm. you're just kind of like, oh, yeah, what was that? You know, or, or the, per- you know, this character felt ambivalent at the end of this story. And I also feel that way. And so it mm-hmm. sticks with me. And I think also sometimes you do get answers and the answers change the more that you live <laughs> you know that's so true yes that's what, like life yes exactly and you might revisit something you really loved and go oh my god I totally missed this this huge thing that happened in the story because I focused on this other thing that's to me like when it's good yeah like Alice Monroe or like you know another writer um Yeon Lee's Gold Boy Emerald oh Girl god. like those those short story collections they're all collections in which you're left with the feeling of like wait what like yes but there's like a, there's like a cold and yet delicious feeling of like questioning. Yes. Yes. It just lingers in the most wonderful way. I mean, I love like, you know, scary stories or mysteries or because of those, those reasons. And, you know, I think that's probably why your writing is literary. You know, that's (laughs) like, I think that's why those initial agents were like, oh, this is a really talented person, but I, also know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and I think your story is not uncommon. I, I was told the same thing. I, my first collection was out on a really small press and mm. then, you know, I had people from big houses being like, show me what you have of a novel. And I was like, mm. I don't have a single word of a novel. I still like writing stories, you know? Mm. Um, and I, I had a whole nother collection that I was trying to shop around to small presses before you know an editor I had a friendship with was like wait what are you doing I'll take that you know but it's not common because it's just the oldest trope in the book that like you have to have a novel to sell Uh alongside your collection right so interesting and did you so your first collection you sold it to a press and you didn't get an agent after that like no no I didn't what I what what happened was um And my editor at that press was like, you need to start working on another book because the day this book comes out, you're going to get interest. And I was like, ha ha. Yeah. Right. Again, that self-doubt. And I did the day it came out, I had an email from random house and, um, Harper and people just started talking to me. And I actually, I did have an email from an agent, but she wanted to see a novel and, Mm -hmm. and I lied. I was like, oh yeah, I'm working on one. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. we all we all all have sent that email for sure absolutely I was like I'll get back to you when I have something that is ready to be read and I you know years went by (laughs) (laughs) um 
but I think, I think it's important to pay attention to what you're interested in writing in the time, you know, and yeah. I think forcing a novel that's never worked for me anyway. Um, you know, it, it comes about at the, in the time that you're ready for it to come about. I think that's, yeah. I mean, like I was trying to force a novel alongside writing these short stories and it was bad. So yeah. And it feels bad, yeah, right? Like it, it doesn't feel bad. like yourself, you know? It and definitely doesn't. Yeah. Have you tried again? Are you trying again? Or are you working on more stories? I have returned to writing fiction. I'm, um, I'm, I have a couple of ideas percolating. So, you know, it does feel, it feels really good to have what you said about this book, be, this uh, let's go, let's go, let's go being a time capsule. Like, yeah, I feel really good that I'm able to talk about it right now and like let it out of the world and like move on to the next thing. <laughs> How does it feel to have it out in the world? Your first book? Um, you know, I was thinking about this the night before launch and I was like, what if somebody asked me how I feel and I don't have a good answer? <laughs> and, you know, the, the, the analogy I came up with, with is like, it's like, it's kind of like getting your first kiss mm. where like in your head, you might think like, oh, if I don't get my first kiss ever, then I'm like, you know, something's wrong with me. And like, oh, this is something that's like a milestone I need to pass. And like, you know, for so many writers, that's like, you know, they, they want that first book for me for most of my life I really wanted to hold my first book in my hands like that mm-hmm. was like a dream I had and then like it finally like happened and then I was like oh like tomorrow is like the day my book goes out in the world and I think I mostly felt like oh similarly to after I had my first kiss I was just like oh okay like I'm not that changed like yes I can put it behind me <laughs> and like it was a milestone but was I significantly transformed I don't know about that yeah I I it's it shocks me to this day, how <laughs> like the fun part is before the book comes out, I feel, or like the best day ever is when you actually sell it. And then after that, it's yes, kind of like, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Like there was a time when I would try to work it into any conversation, just like, and I had a book that just came out, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, because it felt like the world hadn't changed enough for me. Mm-hmm. And then it never felt good saying it, you know, like it never felt, I don't know. Right. It's it's it a very a strange self promoting yeah yeah it's like you know and how was your weekend oh fine um <laughs> I had a book that can't you know <laughs> it's yeah, like it's, so it's hard to shoehorn into conversations because if if you also don't tell people like let's say you don't tell your friends or you don't tell like your relatives and then they find out like through some other avenue they come to you and they're like wait what why didn't you tell me I know then, yeah yes exactly like it's it's kind of like well it's really hard to be like because I think sometimes when you say that people are like oh like like you write blogs or whatever, or, mm-hmm. you know, um, or like sometimes people will say, well, where can I buy your book? And I'm like, you know, anywhere. And they're yeah. like, but like, really, where can I buy it? <laughs> Cause they don't, you know, they don't, yeah. believe, it's not really a thing that you encounter yeah. such a small crowd of us, I guess. Um, That's true. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you a little bit about their, the recurring characters that appear throughout the book and, um, you know, it's for me, it kind of goes hand in hand with um, like that lulling feeling that I was talking about earlier that you're in this world that you recognize, but then, you know, because you, you recognize these characters, you've encountered them before, but then like something happens that shocks us out of the reverie in this in this really effective way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted to hear you talk a little bit about, you know, including these recurring characters in the, in this collection. Yeah. Um, so there's two recurring characters. Um, one is named Luna and one is named Nora. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and ultimately there's a total of six stories in which you know one one of those girls would appear and when i was editing this collection with elisa ogi at ten house who's an amazing editor and i love her so much um I had just finished, like, she had sent me Morgan Talty's Night of the Living Res, which mm. is a short story collection that Ten House did that came out in 2022 and has linked characters. And um, and then also a friend of mine had been reading this book called Flowers of Mold by the Korean writer Ha Sung Nan. Mm. It's another short story collection. And, which is a collection I, I really, really like, and which you might like too, if you like that kind of, like, haunted, creepy Yes, thing. yes. And, um, and you know that friend was telling me how satisfying it felt and that friend is a not a writer is a reader you know which is really refreshing sometimes yes and that friend was telling me how great it felt to go through um flowers of mold and see little flashes here and there of stories that called back to previous stories and how fun that was for her um which is something that with night of the living res you also get that experience of like as you go through the short stories you sort of like piece together maybe like some characters backstories and like and like kind of like string together like a little like a character arc mm-hmm. and so when Elisa and I were working on editing the collection she kind of proposed she was like well you definitely don't have to but you know like what do you think of like linking some of these stories and then I thought about it and I was like yeah actually I think it does make sense especially with the coming of age arc like the stories do travel from some late 20s to their early 20s so even their teenagerhood and I think it is really cool for me to think about, it was cool for me to think about those stories and be like, well, which stories might belong to which girl? And what does it say about the ways that their lives have shaken out? Because mm-hmm. I think in real life, like our lives, when we look back, we're just like, whoa, like we're, we're so like surprised sometimes at like where we end up or like what things happen to us in our lives. And I thought it would be true to the actual experience of coming of age and of having a life to have these stories follow like one or two girls throughout surprising twists and turns in their own lives. It really is. It's, you know, um, like the, there's a surreal quality to this whole book and in, in their stories, there's, there's tons of surreal moments as well, but it also, it, it is exactly like you're saying, it's like this almost poignant connection to like time passing, mm. um, that I really, I mean, I love linked story collections. I live for them. Oh, I love novels and the, stories. Some recommendations you have? I loved Cara Blue Adams. Um, I cannot remember the name of it, but it's her. I'm gonna look it up right now. And that is just like um, the same. It's called You Never Get It Back. Oh, that's a good one. Um, yeah, it's so great. It's the same character. Um, all And then just a bunch of different stories throughout her life. Um, from adolescence to adulthood, just like, you know, Nora and Luna in your book. Um, and yeah, I just, I love that because I feel like the the passage of time is more meaningful in that way. When you, it's just like, you're saying, like you look back and you go, Whoa, time passed. Oh my God, things are different, you know? Mm. And it, it brings it around to you in this whole new way. Um, so I, I was excited when I encountered that. Cause I always, I feel like that's such a it still feels like a, like a brave or bold choice. You know, I don't know why. Um, it sort of yeah. like plays with the, with the traditional form maybe, or it's, it's unexpected. I think that for like a lot of writers of short stories, they, they resist the linked short story collection because they feel like it's kind of bowing into the demands of having a novel. Right. Um, 
or like that it kind of disrupts the purity of the short story form which is seen as a very like pure form right exactly Um, the end right like we don't see this person again this was all we got but it's great to see them again (laughs) yeah yeah I I think I used to firmly be in the I think because I was so annoyed that people were like do you have a novel yet that I was like no my (laughs) short stories are short stories but then when I was editing it I was like you know what I don't have to be such a purist I think really my friend the reader who was like flowers of mold was so satisfying to me to see those like connections happen I was like you know what I really care about the reader's experience and like I do want them to have that like fun easter egg like connection happening Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely I loved it I also want to talk about power and control the story Mm -hmm. power and control um because it's really that also feels like a very brave story to me because it's um it's an abusive lesbian relationship and I feel like we don't get that enough. You know, I know um, <laughs> Carmen Maria Machado has written um, about that, but mm-hmm. uh, it seems like a taboo to, you know, because women, gay people are already oppressed enough. And then to sort of turn them into, you know, it feels like a thing like, oh, now they have to be the bad guy. I think Carmen Maria Machado has said that more eloquently than I. Mm-hmm. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I loved that because it's also from the point of view of the abuser. And, and, you know, she sort of mentions in the beginning, like that her last girlfriend broke up with her and sort of disappeared and you're kind of like, oh, that's strange. Okay. And then you realize Mm -hmm. why at the end. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, Can you talk what it was like to, to write that story? Where did it come from? You know, that story, it was the last one I included, the one I squeezed in, in 2022. I wondered if it was, (laughs) oh my goodness. Um, and it came from a couple of places like the very very first draft I actually wrote several years ago it was very different and very skeletal and it was about a toxic friendship breakup in which one person was really like just one person was really controlling one one of the friends mm-hmm. um but then in between writing that draft and publishing this book I also I was in an abusive lesbian relationship where I where that where my ex-partner was abusive Mm -hmm. and and then when I was like revising my old draft this time through the lens of I was like you know what I'm just gonna make it an abusive relationship Mm -hmm. similar so I kind of drew from my experiences from those two so that that one toxic friendship and that one you know abusive relationship I drew from those experiences but I think something that I do and perhaps something that a lot of people who have you know been abused or been victimized in situations like these often do is try to like empathize with and understand like the perspective of the of the other and -hmm. think like you know like this is someone I love like why would they treat me like this so like Mm -hmm. I spent like so much time thinking about other people's perspectives Mm -hmm. and being like why did they do that like did I do something to cause that and so the first version of power control that the editor um, Elisa saw it was from the first person it was written in the eye voice from Greta um and that was honestly like a really hard draft to write and Elisa didn't like it she was kind of like well she was she's so nice that she would never say that she didn't like it but she was like (laughs) she was like well Greta's kind of a lot and I was like yeah Greta (laughs) is kind of a lot and then I like I like rewrote it from the third person and you know and I think having that magical framework the framework that she is an alchemist that she Mm -hmm. um is able to make these little charms that are like manipulative or suggestive I think that was that really helped function as a 
kind of like a metaphor for how it feels to be manipulated because it's really hard to like kind of describe manipulation in in like real time mm-hmm. um but having the 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 metaphor that that extra layer of like there's actually real magic happening here i think helps the reader kind of confront the feelings of oh this is what it's like for someone who wants to like control somebody or like this is these are like literal tools that someone might use to like try to control a partner and um and yeah and then I changed the short story to the third person and having that distance from Greta made it a lot easier to write it um and so that's ultimately the draft that ended up in the in the book but it is you know it's my most recent short story to be published in this book and it's actually one that that was never in a journal or anything and like you know there hasn't been that much conversation around it wow it it's um it really stood out to me because, um, well, first of all, I love anything from the perspective of like a, a flawed, you know, wrong <laughs> character. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that you give us, I mean, she literally breaks a mirror at the end so she doesn't have to see herself. Mm-hmm. Sorry to ruin this for anyone. <laughs> um, but, but the mirror is still there because of the way that her girlfriend and her roommate are looking at her. Yeah, and sort of just confronting her with their reactions right like and their reactions are pure and fearful and not even hateful just sort of like just really reflecting back to her what she's how she's coming off and um I don't know I I was just I was like hell yeah because I I I do feel like it's not enough we don't see abusive gay relationships enough you know I we don't see this happening we don't you know um, and we definitely don't get to see the catharsis that happens at the end when, you know, the care, you know, the, the character's girlfriend realizes like we're done here and the character fully sees how she's coming off in the world, even though she doesn't want to see it and is doing everything she can not to. Um, so yeah, I, I, I really loved that you included that. Yeah. But yeah, I think, you know, I also read In the Dream House by Carmen Marie Machado. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the more I talked to people, the more I talked to queer women and queer men, um, the more I was like, well, honestly, there is a lot, there is a lot of toxicity and abuse and manipulation. Right. Um, not, I think, you know, I think part of me feels like it's because so many of us queer people are like marginalized already or right. are, like, doubly marginalized. And like, there is that like, you know, like, trauma begets trauma kind of cycle mm-hmm. um which isn't excusable in any way but I was like you know just like I, ju- I was just like statistically I just feel like it is very common mm-hmm. and like people don't want to talk about it well it's human right it's mm-hmm. it's absolutely human um but yeah it's hard to look at it in just that one way because there's all these other all these other oppressions and marginalizations that are happening and um but I don't know you pulled it off thank you well, I really want to thank you for coming on. This has been such a delight to talk to you about your new book, Let's Go, Let's Go, Let's Go, which is out now on Tin House. It just came out like last week, right? Yes. Just August 15th. Ago. Yes. Oh my gosh. Um, it's an incredible collection. It's like I said, it's relentless. Every single story is an amazing read. Um, so listeners, if you haven't <laughs> yet, <laughs> which I'm sure many of you have, but if you haven't, go get this book from Tin House. It's incredible. And I just want to plug, like not, not all the stories are depressing. Like there's one or two <laughs> that are lighthearted. 
I know that is true. And I didn't feel depressed coming away from this book. I felt energized. I felt absolutely energized and excited. So um, if you love uh, haunting, surreal, literary short stories, this is your book. Thank you so much for having me. It was so nice to talk to you. Oh, likewise. (laughs) 